right, good afternoon. Good hope you're doing well. I hope your summer is going well. It seems to be fleeting a bit, but uh, I'm enjoying these uh, warm days, and I think the coming weeks are going to be warm as well. So uh, thankful for this season and time. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're in Zechariah again this morning and continuing the study I've uh, begun in the night visions of Zechariah. So we're looking at these uh, first six chapters, and I've introduced them in previous weeks. We know there are eight visions, and today, Lord willing, we're going to look at the second and third visions. So we're going to be in Zechariah 1, 18, down through chapter 2, and uh, we're going to see what Zechariah has in store as the Lord is showing him some wonderful things about the coming kingdom, and uh, going to show him that ultimately, uh, although people strive constantly for security and well-being, only God can provide definitive security and well-being. And so we'll see that in the passage in front of us. So what I'd like to do is read through the passage together, and then I'll lead us in prayer, and we'll look at these two visions, and I trust that they'll be an encouragement to us today. All right, beginning at Zechariah chapter 1, verse 18. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there were four horns. So I said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these? And he answered me, these are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns which have scattered Judah so that no man lifts up his head. But these craftsmen have come to terrify them, to throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him, and said to him, run, speak to that young man, saying, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Ho there, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have dispersed you as as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Ho, Zion, escape, you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plunder for their slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we consider this text today. Father, we're thankful for this passage, and although there are uh, symbols and meanings here that are profound and deep, we ask that you'd give us understanding. I pray that we would uh, be able to be encouraged by your word as we look to the future, as we get a sneak peek and a glimpse of your plans to build a kingdom here on earth for Jesus to reign. Uh, for your glory to be manifest to the nations. We are excited about this coming reality because we know that we live in a world now that is hostile to the truth and hostile to your word. 
the nations rage and uh, plot against you, as Psalm 2 tells us, but we thank you that ultimately we know you will achieve victory, you will bring triumph and salvation, comfort and grace to your people. You will dwell in our midst, and we look forward to that day. So we pray that these words would encourage us and strengthen us as we seek to be faithful followers of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. About a week ago ended a fairly well-known festival in Pompano, Spain. Uh, I guess it was shuttered a bit during COVID, but they've uh, re reopened it, and uh, it occurs each year in July. It's called the Running of the Bulls, or in Spanish, Encierro. If you've ever watched a YouTube video or seen a clip of this, you probably have an idea what happens. There's a crowd, and they release bulls that chase the people down a sort of a tunnel into a bull ring, and usually each day, it, it runs consecutive days of this eight-day festival, about two to 3,000 people get chased by these bulls running down the course. Uh, it looks maybe exciting for some people, not really my cup of tea. I don't know if it's something you would aspire to do one day. But there's an element of danger there. There's an element of terror. Uh, as you watch the people run, it's uh, both running from the bulls and getting trampled by people, and there's a bit of excitement and fear and all those sorts of things. This idea of getting chased by an animal that can gore you, that can impale you, while it produces some excitement, ultimately is a terrifying prospect. I remember uh, for a short time my parents uh, had some dairy cows and they brought a bull to the field once and the bull began to chase me and I was terrified for my life running from this bull. Well, in this vision of Zechariah that he sees uh, before us today, Zechariah sees something terrifying. That is, Israel's enemies, pictured here as a horn, that are chasing them to scatter them across the world, really across the nations. And they've been pursued, they've been downtrodden, they've been threatened and put at risk because their enemies have had the upper hand. Their enemies have been strong and have been pushing them and chasing them and uh, trying to overtake them. And so God is going to intervene. And here in the second vision, Zechariah gets a glimpse of how God is going to deal with Israel's enemies. We saw in the first vision with the four horsemen that this had a universal meaning. God is at work around the globe to accomplish his purposes. Here in the second vision, we see more of an international focus. God is specifically working among the nations, and particularly those that are hostile to Israel, to accomplish his purposes to bring peace and security. And then as we'll see in the third vision, he's intending to actually come and dwell with his people to ultimately provide them well-being and peace. And all of this is taking place in Jerusalem. So we're going to uh, see three points in the message today. My main uh, summary, if I could say it this way, is this. Only God can provide lasting security and well-being. Only God can provide lasting security and well-being. We live in a world that's constantly looking for security, financial security or personal security, security for your loved ones and family, uh, whether that's insurance or uh, 
home security, things of that nature. We're always looking for ways to protect ourselves because we realize we live in a world full of risks and dangers. And at the same time, people are constantly ch- uh, chasing wellness. That is, how can I uh, succeed? How can I flourish? How can I feel positive and have peace in my life in the midst of a world that's constantly giving me messages that are negative and messages that might hurt me and impair me? How can I uh, find lasting well-being? And God provides both as we see this glimpse of the coming kingdom. So first, God provides security. Let's look at the text together. In verse 18, we have a signal here that God is showing Zechariah the second vision. This is the second of the eight visions. Verse 18 says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there were four horns. This idea of looking and lifting up his eyes in this uh, signal of behold means that something dramatic has happened. It focuses our attention. Something new has come into the scene. And now we're supposed to understand there's a symbol here that has deep meaning for God's people. And the, the symbol here, the, the referent that he sees are four horns. The number four seems to be prominent in the vision cycle. We saw four horsemen last time in the first vision. We see four horns here. We're going to see four winds later. Uh, This number four shows up a lot. And so one of the first things we have to do as we're looking at this passage is try to identify who are these four horns. What does this signify? What's the symbolism here? In the Old Testament and really around the ancient world, a horn was a symbol of aggression and power. Uh, Even today, some sports teams feature horns as their uh, emblem, as their symbol, because it signifies power and it signifies uh, strength and ferocity and all of those sorts of things. And so Zechariah sees four horns here that represent the enemies who are powerful. Uh, For instance, in Uh, The Old Testament, God himself is is described as one who rescues his people like the horns of a wild ox. In Numbers 23, God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of a wild ox. So when we look at these horns, we have to try to understand what are they there for, what are they doing, and what are they accomplishing? So that's what Zechariah asks. Look at verse 19. He says, what are these? What are these horns? What are they representing? And the angel answers, these are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Well, what is this about? Well, a couple things here. The horns uh, disperse Judah. This is a pretty strong word, which means to completely uh, disperse something or scatter it, to spread it about until it's very few in number. This is an image that came from uh, the, the agricultural cycle in the ancient world where they would throw wheat up in the air and the wind would blow the chaff and scatter it into the wind. And so the idea is these enemies have scattered Israel. They have been uh, very effective in dispersing God's people. And the focus here specifically is on Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Now why these three words? What does this signify? If you remember after the uh, fall of, uh, after Solomon's reign, there was a split in the kingdom between the north and the south. And so some argue that this is a reference to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But I would argue that Zechariah is looking for the, to the future. So in each of these visions, he's looking at something that's going to take place in the future, specifically 
when the Messiah comes and sets up his kingdom. We know this as the second coming when Jesus returns to earth. So why Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem? I think what this signifies is God's going to regather the nation. They're going to be unified. They're going to be centered in Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be the capital city from which the Messiah will reign. And so he's going to bring them together and he's going to bless them. Now, the fact that there are four horns and four craftsmen also points to another reality of the ancient world, and that is that often uh, disasters came in fours. If we had time to really unpack this, we see lots of examples in the Old Testament. In the life of Job, he has four calamities that decimate him and his family. Uh, Ezekiel 14 talks about four disasters God's going to bring, famine, wild beasts, the sword and a plague. And so the number four often symbolized disaster and calamity and divine judgment. And so part of this is to show that these enemies have been given free reign by God to accomplish what they did. In other words, it isn't just that God looked away for a moment and suddenly Israel's enemies came and decimated them, but the, the sense is that God allowed this to happen because he brought judgment upon them. Now, why would God do that? Well, remember, back in the Mosaic Law in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, God warned that if Israel was obedient to the law, if they faithfully lived out the covenant, God would abundantly bless them. Their families, their flocks and herds, God would bless them and he would be with them. He would give them peace and prosperity. However, if they disobeyed, God would turn them over to their enemies. Their enemies would come and would scatter them and would... Uh, decimate them and would uh, take all of their land and the fruitfulness of their flocks and herds. And so uh, this symbolizes the fact that God has allowed these enemies to come as divine judgment for their sins. But why four horns? One more thing that I think is important, and I want to uh, draw our attention to this, is the fact that the four horns, I think, have prophetic implications that are very profound. And to see this, what I'd like to do is uh, turn to a passage that I think Zechariah is actually alluding to. If you have your Bibles and can turn with me, look back at Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. One of the things we find about Zechariah is that he often alludes to other prophets and he uh, builds upon their truth. And the prophet Daniel is a prophet that he seems to have some connection to. When we look at this idea of four horns, there are only about six passages in the Old Testament that mention four horns. Most of them refer to the four horns of the altar, but there's only one other prophetic passage in the Bible that deals with four horns, and it's found here in Daniel chapter 8. And I think Daniel 8 is the key or the clue to what Zechariah is seeing. Daniel 8 verse 1 talks about an introduction here. It's in the third reign of Belshazzar, the king, that a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. And this is what he saw. I looked in the vision. While I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. The two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one coming up last. 
I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward. No other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue him from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns which I had seen standing in front of the canal and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him, so he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat exceedingly magnified himself, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came forth a small horn, which grew exceedingly great." Now, there's a lot to unpack in this passage, and we don't have time to look in detail at this, but what Daniel is essentially seeing is a succession of world powers, that is a succession of kingdoms that will in many ways rule over God's people Israel. Daniel is seeing this vision during the Babylonian kingdom. He's in one of the citadels in Susa during the Babylonian empire. And what Daniel gets a glimpse of are the successive kingdoms of the Medes and Persians. That's the two horns and the ram that would come. And then a male goat. This was a symbol of the Greek empire led by Alexander the Great. And then after that, he sees a little horn that becomes exceedingly great. And he uh, is eventually here seeing the, the future Roman empire, which will conquer the other empires. And so The four horns mentioned in verse 8 are the four parts of the Greek empire after it's split. Remember Alexander the Great, if you know your ancient history, died very suddenly in his 30s and his kingdom was uh, divided into four parts. And so I think the important takeaway, though, is in this series of successive visions, Daniel sees animals with horns that represent really what Zechariah is tapping into. That is to say, the four horns that Zechariah sees I think, relate to these four kingdoms that will successively rule over Israel. The Medes and the Persians, that's the one that Zechariah is under in his day. That will be followed then by the Greeks and the Romans, and then ultimately the Messiah will come and overturn the final kingdom. Daniel also references this in Daniel chapter 2. He has this dream of the statue with four different metals. And if you remember that, it represents Babylonia, the Medes, Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. And so the four horns are these four kingdoms. So going back now to Zechariah 1, what Zechariah sees is that God for a time has allowed the people of Israel to be scattered by their enemies. God has allowed these terrifying enemies to come and to drive them into the four parts of the earth. This is partly because of his judgment due to their sin. He's allowed this to happen, but now he's going to bring an antidote to this. Now he's going to bring salvation. He had had said to them that if they sinned, he would scatter them, but now he's going to bring them back. And so what's the antidote? Look with me at verse 20. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, four craftsmen. Uh, This word craftsman has the idea of someone who engraves or cuts something so it can 
refer to someone who makes jewels or precious stones. It can also refer to someone who plows in the ground and, and cuts a furrow in a field. Uh, so either translation is, is possible. I probably lean a little bit more toward plowman, but in either case, the idea is God is bringing four individuals who have the means to defeat these enemies. He's bringing four individuals who can deal with these horns. If we imagine the horns as connected to wild animals who are uh, chasing and scattering God's people, these four individuals are the antidote to that. They're able to stand up to these animals. It's like ancient cow tippers. They're able to corral these cows and these wild ox and bring them under control. And so what I think he's referring to is the fact that each of these successive kingdoms will eventually be overturned by a powerful king who will ultimately bring relief to God's people. And so if the horns represent the Babylonians, the Medes and Persians, the Greeks and the Romans, these four craftsmen represent the, the leaders who overthrew those kingdoms. These would be Cyrus the Great of the Medes and Persians, Alexander the Great, of the Greeks, Julius Caesar of the Romans, and ultimately Jesus himself, the Messiah. The final plowman, the Messiah, is like the Daniel 2 image of a stone cut without hands who strikes the image and smashes it to pieces. The final craftsman is the one who finally and ultimately defeats the enemy. Verse 21 emphasizes this. It says, these are the horns which scattered Judah and the phrase here is, so that no man lifts up his head. This is a kind of obscure phrase as to what this means, but the phrase is used uh, many times in censuses that are taken in the book of Numbers. I think what this is a reference to is the scattering was so effective they couldn't even count the number of people that were left in the land. And we know this was true because for many Many centuries, uh, the, the land of Palestine really languished. There were very few people left. And so uh, the people had been scattered due to God's judgment. And so they're now to come back and they're to uh, live in the land. And God is going to bring them lasting security. So these craftsmen or plowmen, they come, they overthrow the horns who have lifted up their horns against Judah, and they're going to bring lasting peace. These craftsmen are going to resettle them in the land and bring lasting peace. This brings us then to the next vision, that is God's going to provide well-being. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. Zechariah here sees a, a second vision, and this is really the third vision of the sequence. The second one we'll look at this morning. And here he sees a man coming that has a measuring line in his hand. Now, this is an unusual vision because there are several conversations going on, and there are several characters that we kind of try to have to get straight because it's a little bit difficult to know who everybody is. So notice in verse 2, he asks a question to the man. He says, where are you going? The man replies, to measure Jerusalem to see how wide it is and how long it is. And then in verse 3, we have two angels. One angel speaking to Zechariah, and the other angel's coming out to meet him. 
And then in verse 4, one of them says, run and tell that young man Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls. So who exactly are all of these individuals and characters within the story? There's a little bit difficult, uh, difficulty in identifying them. We know at least there's Zechariah and the man with the measuring line. And then there are two angels. The question surrounds who is this young man referenced in verse 4? Some see this as another individual, a young man who's standing there, but I think probably it's better to see it as referring either to Zechariah or to the measuring man, to one of the two, because it says that young man, as if to say that one right there that we've already been introduced to. Now it's possible it's the man with the measuring line, but I would argue that the young man here is Zechariah himself. I think what this is saying is you need to go and tell the prophet The reason this man is measuring Jerusalem is because God has massive plans for the city. The city is going to grow and expand beyond its boundaries. It's going to flourish. There will be multitudes living in it, so many people that they can't even fit within the walls. And so, if that's the case, we have here uh, a vision that's populated by two angels talking, Zechariah and this mysterious man with the measuring line. Now, if we go back to verse 1, I said this in the first vision, whenever we see the first character in a given vision, that's usually the most important character. Here, the character is the man with the measuring line, and notice it says, behold. Whenever we see behold, that's an important word because it draws our attention to something very significant. Behold, a man with a measuring line. Now, who is this man and what is he doing? He's come to the city, and he's going to measure the the width of it, the breadth, and the length. Now, he has this measuring line in his hand, and he approaches the city. So, as we unpack this, one of the things that we have to see is, what does it mean for him to measure, and why is he going about the job as he does? I think the key to this vision is also in another prophet to whom Zechariah alludes. So I'm going to have you actually turn to another passage, and we're looking at several this morning. Ezekiel chapter 40. Ezekiel chapter 40. Ezekiel and Daniel both prophesy in Babylon after the exile, and Zechariah, I would argue, is picking up images from both prophets. In Ezekiel 40, Ezekiel begins a series of four chapters where he sees the future temple where God will dwell with his people. And there are amazing aspects of this temple. It's fascinated interpreters for many years. But in this temple, he sees a vision of someone who's measuring the dimensions. Notice in verse 2 of chapter 40, in the visions of God, he brought me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. And on it, to the south, there was a structure like a city. So he brought me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze, with a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. The man said to me, Son of man, see with your eyes, hear with your ears, give attention to all that I'm going to show you, for you have been brought here in order to show it to you, declare it to the house of Israel, all that you see." What I think Zechariah here is showing is this man that's measuring the city is the same man that that Ezekiel saw in his vision measuring the dimensions of the future temple in Jerusalem. Well, who is that man? 
Well, I think if we understand the sequence of the visions, the last time we were told, behold, there's a man, was in the first vision. Remember uh, in verse 8 of chapter 1, Zechariah sees at night, and behold, a man is riding on a red horse. This takes place in the Kidron Valley, which is to the east of the city. And this man, I would argue, is likely coming from the east into the city because he's measuring its breadth or width and then its length, meaning he's first going east to west and then he's going north to south. Now, this is partly because this is how Jerusalem sits, but I would argue that the man who is riding the chestnut horse, the red horse, is likely the same character who now has a measuring line. And beyond this, one more thing is whenever Zechariah in his visions records the words, behold a man, I think it's a reference to the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say, it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ showing what he's going to do. It happens three times. It happens in Chapter 1, verse 8, it happens here in 2-1, and the final time is in chapter 6 and verse 12, and that's where Zechariah crowns Joshua the high priest, and he says, behold the man. Joshua the high priest is a symbol or a type of the coming Messiah who will be both a priest and a king, and so Joshua the high priest exemplifies him or typifies him uh, as a symbol of the coming Messiah. Now, this is interesting, right? If this is, in fact, this eschatological man, this future man who's doing things, he's a divine warrior in the first vision. Here, he's a builder. He's a divine builder who's renovating the city. He's measuring its dimensions. He's preparing for this future kingdom. Now, if this is, in fact, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, the image, to me, is astounding Because we know from the New Testament that Jesus, the Messiah, is a carpenter by trade. He's a carpenter because he learns these skills from his father, Joseph. He's identified in Mark chapter 6 as a carpenter. John 14 says, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going away, but I'm preparing a place for you. I'm building an abode. He says, in my father's house are many rooms or the old uh, King James, many mansions, that is to say, many dwelling places that I'm constructing for you. Revelation 21 says, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven prepared or built as a bride adorned for her husband. I would argue that Jesus himself has a hand here in measuring the dimensions of the city that will be his future home and in fact will participate in the building up of the city when he returns to establish his kingdom. And so, Zechariah sees him, the angels begin to speak, and what I want to focus on in in verses 4 and following is the message that Zechariah gets. It's an urgent message because the angel is told to run, run and speak to that man and, and, and say this, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. Now, what's important to get here? Remember that in the previous vision, Israel was scattered so effectively, dispersed so much that they couldn't even count the remnant that was left in the land. Here, on the other hand, the city is teeming with people. 
when God accomplishes his purposes, when the Messiah returns to reign over Jerusalem, the city will be bursting at the seams with people. So much so that it says uh, they're, they're not even within the walls because there's so many. They're dwelling in the un, uh, open countryside. And the Lord himself, verse 5 says, the Lord will be a wall of fire. Now, this would have been a dangerous situation in the ancient world because if you kind of uh, understand the situation, there were a lot of threats that would often uh, come against a city because foreign kings would want to come and conquer the city. And so the safest place to be would be to run inside the city, to shut the gates, and to protect yourselves from your enemies who would want to come and destroy you or take your city. But here the idea is the people can dwell in safety and security because God himself is the wall around them. God himself encircles them. If God is your wall, no one can get to you. This is the ultimate security beyond a house alarm, beyond any guard that could stand at a guard shack and try to keep intruders away. God himself will guard and protect and keep them safe. So I would argue that Zechariah here sees that God provides lasting and ultimate security peace and wellness. God provides this when he comes. Zechariah is getting a glimpse here of this future kingdom when God dwells in the midst of his people. And then uh, it ends with uh, God telling about his future kingdom plans, what God is intending to do. God tells about his future kingdom plans. And there are two parts here. We see verses six to nine, a warning of sorts, and then verses 10 to 13, a promise. There's a warning and a promise. The warning is you need to come back to the land because God's going to be here. God's going to dwell. So don't be complacent. Make sure that you're joining God's purposes and joining him. And then a promise that when you come to the Lord's presence, there's rejoicing. There's singing for joy. There's uh, wellness and peace and happiness because God provides all of these things. So let's look together at this. Beginning in verse 6. Verse 6. He says, uh, Ho there, the Nazbi says, or woe. The idea is flee, leave the land of the north, for I have dispersed you as the four winds of heaven. What is this talking about? I think Zechariah here is, is getting a warning that the people who are left in Babylon need to come because they've been scattered, but they need to come back to the land. Now, I think there's really two aspects to this, if you will. There's a, an immediate aspect that there are uh, Israelite people, Jewish people living in Babylon that need to come back into the land. But I think this ultimately also looks forward to the time when God will regather the people of Israel into the land. And uh, Ezekiel tells us that's a two-stage process where they first come into the land and then they recognize the Messiah and they're converted as a nation right before Jesus returns. Now, why is Babylon here described as the land of the north? If you've looked at a map, Babylon is actually to the southeast of Israel. So what is this referring to? Well, in the ancient world, you wouldn't go directly from Babylon across land to get to Israel because that was a desert. You would follow the rivers. This is what Abraham did when he left Ur of the Chaldees and came into Canaan. You would follow the path of the river, so you would inevitably come from the northward direction. So this is a reference, I think, to Babylon, and they're to come back into the land from the north. Uh, they're to come and escape and to come back into Israel. 
And the purpose for this, the purpose for this is God's going to do a great work in their midst. Notice here that he talks about Zion, that they're to escape those who are living with the daughter of Babylon, and they're to come to Zion. Zion is a reference here to the mountain of God. This is the, where the temple is and where God is going to inhabit the earth and live with his people. And then verses 8 and 9 tell us that the reason they are to come into the land is because God's presence is going to be manifested there. Now, verse 8 is a very difficult uh, verse because it has a phrase here that has and I'm not going to go through these, but 13 different proposals as to what it means. This phrase here, after glory, he has sent me, is very confusing. The parts are, that are confusing are the fact that glory can be translated as a weightiness or as a glory. And the, the idea of after can be translated behind, after, against. It can be translated a lot of different ways. And then the idea of he has sent me, who is me that's being sent? Now, let me just try to summarize what I think this is saying and what's going on here. Notice who's speaking. It's the Lord. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory, he has sent me. What's baffled and confused commentators over the years is, how is the Lord speaking about the Lord being sent? Do you see the tension there? In other words, the Lord is saying, God sent me. Well, what does that mean? If the Lord is saying, God sent me, isn't the Lord God? After glory, he has sent me. So what could this mean? Well, the most common interpretation is that God has sent the prophet Zechariah. That after glory, he has sent me. That would be a reference to Zechariah. Why I think that's a difficult conclusion to make is because of what the person does. He's going to go against the nations... Verse 9, he's going to shake his fist or wave his hand to bring them into judgment. I would argue that Zechariah the prophet doesn't have the authority and power to bring judgment against the nations. That he's not the one that really manifests or shows God's presence and glory. So who is this elusive figure? I would argue that the best way to interpret this is to not see a change in speakers, but essentially to see what exactly it says, and that is God is sending God for glory. Who is this? This is the Messiah. God is sending the Messiah to represent and bring his glory. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The gospel writer John says that, uh, that Jesus, the word, was sent to dwell among us and to show us grace and truth and to bring the glory of the Father to humanity. And so, this is a, a mystery, if you will, but the Lord sends the Lord in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So what Zechariah is saying is, don't be complacent in your scattered position, you may be discouraged and think, what is God doing in our day? He's saying, join in God's program, be in a place where his blessing can come because the Messiah is coming and he will show God's glory. He will manifest God's glory. He will bring the kingdom in. And then he ends with this wonderful picture as to what this will look like in verses 10 through 13. He says, sing for joy, 
be glad, O daughter of Zion. What he's saying here is there's going to be rejoicing and celebration when the Lord comes to dwell in their midst. When Jesus takes the throne of his father David, when he manifests the glory of the Lord himself, this will be a time when the nations can rejoice. They can join in singing and celebration because the Messiah has come. History has been righted. Justice has been brought. He will bring God's very presence down to earth in a wonderful nexus of heaven and earth. He will dwell uh, in the midst of his people. He will bring God's glory. Verse 11 is a promise that even is more exciting because we will be part of this. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Up to this point in the book of Zechariah, the nations have been the enemies. They've been the bad guys in the story, so to speak. They're the ones that are harassing and threatening Israel. But here we get a glimpse that the nations too will join in the salvation God intends for his people. The nations will join themselves and God will dwell in their midst. Don't let that slip by you without realizing the profound truth that is there. God dwelling with humanity is the ultimate desire humans have had since the beginning of time. In the book of Genesis, God dwelling in the midst of humanity was the original goal. Sin thwarted that, and we've been alienated uh, and hostile to God because of our indwelling sin. But what's going to happen now in the future kingdom is God's going to dwell in the midst of his people. It will be glorious, and we'll be able to see the Lord face to face. The Psalms talk about this. Uh, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing for joy. Let them sing before the Lord because he comes to judge the earth. Many nations will come. They will dwell. They will recognize God's presence. Verse 12 says he will possess Judah. And it uses a phrase that only occurs twice in the Old Testament, in the holy land. This is not saying that Israel is special necessarily because it's a particularly beautiful piece of land. What makes it holy is the fact that God will dwell there. God will be in the midst of his people. He will be reigning with them. He will be blessing them. And verse 13 gives us a, a final uh, sense of this, that all will be silent before the Lord as he comes into his holy habitation. What a day that will be. When the Lord comes to dwell on earth, when all the wrongs of history, the injustice, the wars, uh, the terrible things that have happened are finally put away and the Lord dwells in the midst of humanity and brings his blessing and salvation. We look forward to that day. We look forward to that day. So as we think about these second and third night visions, let me conclude with just a few thoughts. Uh, you may feel sometimes, to use an analogy or a principle, that the enemies of the Lord have the upper hand. Throughout much of history, it seems like the horns are stronger than the craftsmen. It seems like God's purposes are being thwarted by enemies of the good news, by enemies of God, by enemies of Scripture. And we can often feel that. Perhaps there's conflict that you've experienced in your family, in your workplace, uh, in your community because you're standing up for the Lord and trying to be faithful to him and perhaps there's hostility that you yourself are facing that can be discouraging but know this 
God has a plan to dwell with us. God will bring lasting security and well-being. He promises to bless us and ultimately we will flourish because he's coming to dwell in our midst. This is not a prosperity gospel hollow uh, promise that he's going to somehow necessarily financially bless us in every way now, but we do know that he's coming ultimately to dwell with us. And in that day, every tear will be wiped away, every adversity will be put out of mind, God will dwell with us, and the only response we can make is to sing for joy, to celebrate, to glorify God, to magnify and to worship him. And I trust this morning that you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and that you've experienced the security and well-being that only God can bring. This world can't bring lasting security. It can't bring lasting wellness. Only God can do that. And we look forward to the day when he will dwell with us. And even now, if we have believed in Christ, we have a foretaste of that in the fact that the Spirit dwells within us. And we know that God's presence is among us. So be encouraged today, brother and sister in Christ, that God will ultimately prevail over every enemy. He will dwell in our midst. He will bring lasting security and well-being. And we can glorify him because of that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are thankful for the promises of this text this morning, uh, this afternoon. We thank you that we know you will ultimately prevail over every enemy, every hostility, even death itself, and that you will prevail and you will come to dwell in our midst and we will behold you. I pray that uh, those that are here today would be encouraged by this message, that if there are those who have not yet trusted in Christ, that they would take that step of faith today, that you would work in their heart to draw them to yourself and that they would place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that as we think about this passage in the coming week, that we would uh, just remember that even when we're facing challenges and adversities and, and difficulties, ultimately you are sovereign and ultimately you will bring your presence, your glory, and your power to be manifested here on earth and we look forward to that day. Encourage us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.